If you, have your, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 19. And uh, we're going to move through this chapter today. We're going to get some things from, from verses. We have been coming through it almost a verse at a time. And uh, we've needed to do that. It was some great material. Last week we focused on verse 11. And uh, I, I showed you how uh, the great principle of God passing over uh, our transgressions through the story of, of, of David uh, and uh, Mephibosheth. And now you have a better understanding why I said to you that uh, this verse is probably the most powerful verse in all of the Bible. Uh, it's, uh, it really uh, deals with our understanding and, uh, and appreciation of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember I talked about and I laid out the fact that the uh, Bible says that we have three infirmities, every one of us. And they are the things that we struggle with. The infirmity of the flesh, the fact that we don't know how to pray. But most importantly, the fact that we always forget what God has done for us. And, uh, you know, and the key for us uh, is to uh, get to the point in our lives where we also pass over the transgressions of others based on our understanding of how God has passed over our own transgressions at the cross. I talked to you about the personal application of scriptures. How that the Bible has a historical application, it has a doctrinal application, and it has an inspirational application. But it also then has a very special application, which I call the personal application. That is just straight to your heart. God's given you something going straight to you and not coming through anyone else. And I told you that, you know, nothing will change your life more than the continuance remember of the day that God saved you. You know, I, I, I look at the Apostle Paul, and I got thinking of him this week. You know, his life was never the same once he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Uh, it changed him forever. Uh, here he went from a guy who persecuted God's people to a guy who established every New Testament church throughout Asia and Asia Minor. Uh, he's one of the most incredible individuals all down through the history of, of the world, certainly in church history. And you know, no matter where Paul went, no matter what he did, no matter who he spoke to, whether it was a common, ordinary man, or like when he stood before Festus, or King Agrippa, or he stood before kings, you'll find there in places like Acts 21 and Acts uh, 22, 23, 26, and 28, that whenever he starts to talk to people about the Lord, he cannot help tell them about the day that he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And I'm telling you something. If you want to keep your life where you stay with God where you need to be. If you want to get to the point in your life where you don't lose your perspective, lose your edge, so to speak, uh, just get in your life the fact that, you, that you'll never forget what God did for you the day you got saved. In your heart and your life, the day He passed over your transgressions. And yet, it's so easy for us to lose sight of that. All of us. And I'd have to say that in most cases today that uh, our relationship with Christ is not very valuable to us. You know why? Because we don't really understand the cost uh, for us to have it. And when we don't understand the cost for us to have it, then, then we'll never really, uh, never really have to pay any price ourselves. And so uh, we'll never really appreciate uh, for taking any stand for anything for God after we got it. We won't see the value of it. Because with the value of understanding what God did also comes the value of what we need to do for Him. That we come to the point where we forget that. And I said last week, you know, my prayer out of last Sunday and, and what we do here is if I, just to get a few people 
I mean, obviously, I'd like everybody, but many of you already have, but uh, it's not a reality in the world that we live in today. Just one or two people, one or two young men, young ladies, one couple, a couple of couples that will just come to the place in their lives where they'll allow the Word of God to change them forever. And it all goes back to the day that, that, that God saved you. Now, today, I want to move on here in Proverbs chapter 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And uh, I'm going to show you how last week's verse, and remember now, I gave you the personal application last week, but now I'm going to take that same verse, I'm going to add it into verses 12 through 17, and I'm going to show you how it fits into the context <clears throat> historically and doctrinally. I want you to be able to see that. I, I was telling the uh, folks in people ministry yesterday that, you know, my goal for you is to get you to the point where you really know the Bible. Uh, I, I try to do everything I do to help give you that, uh, that ability. I try to provide every tool for you. Uh, in the 40-some years of my life and my ministry and my time in the Bible, I, I've learned some shortcuts to some things of, of, that'll save you some time that'll help you learn the Bible. And I, I, and I think it's my responsibility to pass those off to you and to help you. And I understand, just like anything, you know, many people aren't going to do anything with it. But again, I'm looking for the ones who do. And out of a crowd of 200 or 250, whatever, if you get five people to do what's right, you're doing good today. But those five people can change the world. I mean, you look at Paul, one man, God changed the world. You look at Moses, one man, God changed the world. You look at Martin Luther, one man, God changed the world. You can be the defining factor in what God does in the rest of the world until Jesus comes back, if you allow God to do it. But it's up to you. But I told him yesterday, I said, you know... When it comes to the Bible and, and understanding the Bible, and, and what, what I call a working knowledge of the Scriptures, the ability to not only use the Bible, but let the Bible use you, I think that, that what it really comes down to is that for you to, you to get to the point in your life where you understand about 80-85% of the time, where you're at in that Bible, no matter what book it is, no matter what chapter it is, no matter what verse it is, that you're able to look at that path. And you can't do it 100%. Nobody can. But you want to get to the high 80s or 85% where wherever you go in that Bible, most of the time, you look at a passage, you look at a book, you look at a verse, you look at a word. And you can know where that, that verse and that word or that passage stands, doctrinally, historically, inspirationally. It'll open up the Scripture for you. Uh, those three applications are not taught today anywhere. Most Christians don't believe it. Most pastors don't believe it. I know the Bible colleges don't believe it. Most churches don't believe it. <clears throat> but that's their problem. It doesn't change the fact that that's the way that God systematically put his Bible together. And my goal for every one of you, the way my style of teaching, <clears throat> my style of laying out the Bible, my style of everything that I do, is to help you get to that point in your life when you look at the Bible, you look at the Scriptures, and about 85 to 80 percent of the time, you know where you're at and what ground you're standing on, doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally. Because there lies the keys to the Scripture. If you get those down, the rest of it will fall into place for you. Now, as I said, I want to read today for you. And just pick it up in verse, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 11 again. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 12 here when we two are the teaching. But I'm going to show you how they go together. Last week's verse was verse 11. The discretion of a man <coughs> deferreth his anger. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now we're going to pick it up today. The king's wrath is as the roaring of a lion. But his favor is as dew upon the grass. A foolish son is a calamity of his father. 
and the contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. Uh, houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. He that keepeth the commandment keepeth his own soul, but he that despises his ways shall die. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which hath favor given will be pay uh, him uh, again. Let's ask God's blessing on the time this morning. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you. And I pray, Father, you'll take the scriptures today and help us to look at it yet from another angle and, and put it all together that these good people, uh, piece upon piece, line upon line, here a little, there a little, will begin to establish a relationship with the Word of God of understanding it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you do for us. Pray your blessings upon us now today. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, historically, our verse from last week, verse 11, it said, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now, I gave you that in a personal application straight to you. But I want to put it into context of these other verses today so you can see how it flows along with what uh, the Bible's saying. Now, that reference in verse 11 is, in, in the context, is God uh, making a reference to the nation of Israel. He's saying that it's to God's glory not to destroy the nation of Israel. He's going to pass over all their transgressions. He'll deal with them in the tribulation period. He'll chastise them. You'll find that in the book of Hebrews. But when he brings an end to all the other nations, and he will, he will pass over Israel and fulfill his promises to them. Now this is what verse 11 is saying in our context. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, in fact it's 15 verses uh, uh, 18 and 20, we find where God made his covenant with the nation of Israel through Abraham. And he said to Abraham, now i got to say, up to this point, up to this point, and we know that the theme of the Bible in the Old Testament is the kingdom of heaven. We know that. And we know that from uh, Adam and Eve, Adam was given the kingdom of heaven, and the devil came and took it and he lost it. Noah had it next, and he lost it. And so, everyone that God gave it to, to reign over it and to have, the devil showed up to take it back. And we know why that is. We talked about that Thursday night in Bible study. The devil wanting to get back the kingdom that he once had and the fact that he lost it. When it came to Abraham, it all changed. When it came to Abraham, God said to Abraham, I'm going to do something with you that I haven't done with anybody else. I'm going to make a covenant with you and the people that are going to come from you, which is going to be my nation. And the covenant is going to be this. I'm going to give you the kingdom of heaven, and I'm not going to take it away from you in the Old Testament. I'm going to stay with you. The devil will never get that kingdom from you from this point on. Now, if you don't do what's right, I'm going to whip the fire out of you. And I'm going to use the other nations to come down and chastise you. <clears throat> and, I'm going to, and I'm going to hold you accountable. And I'm going to chasten you when you don't do what's right. But the covenant is going to stand with Israel that I'll never take that kingdom from you. Let me read it for you here. Verse Genesis 15, 18. In that same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. 
In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 6 down through 8, he said this concerning the covenant. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore, here it comes, the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him who the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. God chose Israel through Abraham, and he said, I'm going to give you a covenant that I'm never going to take the kingdom of heaven from you. It's always going to be yours. Verse 8 says, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of this people to establish the earth, the cause to inherit the desolate heritage. He said, You know what? Israel, you're going to get it all. That's the covenant that he made with Abraham. He said to him over there in Genesis 15, Someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven, endless. And Abraham is an incredible, pivotal point in your early part of your Bible. Up to this point, the kingdom of heaven came and went based on God gave it to a man, the devil took it back. When it came to Abraham, he got the covenant for the nation of Israel that he'd never lose it. It says over in Jeremiah chapter 30, Verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> it says, Therefore fear, uh, fear thou not, O servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for though I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Verse 11. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations. And he's going to. For I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. You know what he's saying? He's saying, when it comes to the nation of Israel, it's the God's glory when he makes an end of all the other nations to pass over their transgressions. So in the context, you see how it works. And that's a very important in your Bible that you get to the place at some point in your life where you understand passages like this, passages throughout the Bible, that you see it, what it means historically, you understand what it means prophetically, doctrinally, and then you understand what it means in an inspirational application and sometimes what it means in that personal application. Now, as I said, <clears throat> verse 11 and 12, historically and doctrinally, will again deal with the nation of Israel uh, at the second coming of Christ. Now look at verse 12. Let's start to put it together here. The king's wrath is as a roaring of a lion, <clears throat> but his favor is as the dew upon the grass. Now, verse 11, as I've told you a couple of times so far, verse 11 is dealing with God passing over the transgression of Israel. And then we come into verse 12, which deals with two aspects. The first part, the king's wrath is as a roaring of a lion. That'll be dealing with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we want to look at. In your Bible, there's two regatherings of the nation of Israel. Most people don't know this. There's two regatherings of the nation of Israel. The first one is after the 70 years captivity of 606 B.C. when they go back in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
And then they're in the land. <coughs> they're under Roman dom- domination, but they're in the land. They're back. They're regathered back, and they're there to the first coming of Christ. At the first coming of Christ, they're in the homeland. And of course, they're under Roman domination, but they're in the homeland. <coughs> and uh, God had regathered them and brought them back. For obvious reasons, we don't have time to get into this morning. <clears throat> They're in that land up to 70 A.D. After they reject the Lord Jesus Christ and we move into the church age at that particular point in time, where now God, the kingdom of heaven, is not going to be established at this point. It's going to be at a later date. So God turns his attention to the nation, uh, from the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. I'm going to show you how that works in just a moment. And now he turns his attention to the Gentile nations. And in 70 A.D., Titus comes down. And he destroys Jerusalem. He murders and butchers the Jews and they're cast out of the land and now they're gone. So the first regathering of Israel will be in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then in 70 AD, Titus scatters them. And from 70 AD all the way up to the 20th century, they're scattered everywhere. And then the second regathering takes place in 1948 in our own century. Right about the time that most of you older folks were probably born. And this is where he regathers them the second time. And he goes back into the land. And where they were back in the land for the, well, in Ezra and Nehemiah, he had to get them back. And here it comes. You want to talk about consistency? Where in the, Ezra and Nehemiah, he had to get them back in the land at the first regathering for the first coming of Christ. In 1948, he had to get them back in the land for the second coming of Christ. See how it works? And that's where you're at with it. And it's important to understand these verses. And verse 11 is telling us that God is passing over Israel's transgression, but then verse 12 jumps right into the wrath of a king as a roaring lion, and that'll be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Revelation, excuse me, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 2, the Bible says, The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion, who provoketh him to anger, sinneth against his own soul. You'll find in your Bible that Christ is portrayed through both comings, the first coming and the second coming, two different ways. Uh, you'll find that in the first coming, which is recorded for you in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you'll find the second coming, it's recorded for you there uh, in the book of Revelation and basically 98% of the Old Testament. At the first coming of Christ, he comes as a lamb. You want to understand this. At the first coming of Christ, he comes as a lamb. When John saw him in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He came as a lamb. When the great prophet Isaiah wrote way back in the Old Testament, four, five, six hundred years before Christ ever showed up, prophecy in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 7, he said, Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we did, did, did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 says, We like sheep have gone astray, and have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. At the first coming of Christ, he came as a, he came as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. 
at the first coming of Christ, he didn't, he didn't come in as a, he didn't come in as a, with a conquering army. He didn't come in as a king. He came in as a prophet. This is what messed Israel up because all of the verses in the Old Testament show him coming as a king because they're all second coming references. And so when he showed up in the first coming of Christ as Jesus and claimed to be a son of God, this is why they had such a problem with it. But he came as a lamb. Somebody asked me one time why Christ doesn't come back the second coming like he did the first coming. Did you ever stop and think about that? You ever stop and think about why he comes back the way he does the second coming as a roaring lion and the first time he came as a, as a little lamb, as a sheep who was dumb and opened out his mouth and was for the slaughter? I'll tell you why. I thought about it a long time. If, 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 I mean, if he came back the second time like he did the first time, I guarantee you, 98% of God's people today would reject him. And the whole world would reject him. First of all, he'd have a King James Bible that would put out about 98% of the churches would throw him out on that account. Second thing is you're coming down and thinking about it. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses would have to reject him because he believed that Jesus Christ was God and they don't. The Mormons couldn't accept him because he wouldn't let him have more than one wife. The Seventh-day Disadvantages couldn't be part of it because they meet on Saturday when the Bible says you meet on Sunday. The Catholics couldn't accept him because he, he would tell them that there's no hope in the Pope. And he would also tell them that the only thing holy about Mary was her socks. Most fundamental Baptists couldn't accept him because he wouldn't show up in a suit and tie. The Charismatics couldn't accept him because Jesus never spoke in tongues. The Church of Christ couldn't accept him because Jesus never baptized anybody. No. If he came back the second time, the way he came the first time, you can put money on it. They'd kill him in 15 minutes. So he's not coming back the second time like he did the first time. First time he came as a lamb. And he allowed himself to be slaughtered. Second time, he's come as a roaring lion and he's going to tear you up. Coming back as a king. With an army that follows him. That'd be you and me. And you'll find pictures of that all through the Bible. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. Joel chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 63. Uh, It's endless throughout the Bible. When he comes back the second time, he's going to take this world by force. And he's going to establish a righteous reign by force. Because he knows as well as I know, and you should know, that if he tried to come back as a Lamb of God, we'd have none of it. So he's not coming back as a little lamb. This is why people are so popular about Christmas. This is why God's people get so excited about Christmas. They love a little baby in a manger that's non-threatening. They love to go to church and hear the story about the little Jesus baby, Manuel. How he was in a crib and how he was in a swaddling clothes and how all the little animals are out. He's very unthreatening that way, isn't he? And they like it at Easter time because he's dead. If you really want to have a great day that you really celebrate, that you get nobody to come up to, and this is why nobody does it, you just celebrate September 23rd through the 24th. Second coming day. Not us. Now, the second part of that verse will be a reference to the millennial reign of Christ. Now, here again, I'm going to put it all together for you in just a minute. It says in the second part of that verse, but his favor is as the dew upon the grass. Now, dew in the Bible, along with rain, along with water, will always be a picture of the millennial reign of Christ, wherever you find it. 
And it says, but his favor is as the dew upon the grass. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 20 talks about the depth being broken up and the cloud dropped down the dew. In Hosea chapter 14 verse 5 it says, I will be as the dew unto Israel and he shall grow as a lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 26 through 29, it says, There is none uh, like unto God, uh, the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heavens in thy help, and his actually on the sky. The eternal God is refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy before them, and shall, and, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon the land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop down dew. That's the second coming of Christ passage. So when you find dew in your Bible, you want to look at the context. What are those key words? Along with the word rain. Now dew will be found on the grass uh, in the morning. And you'll find that in Exodus chapter 16 verse 13. When the manna came down and in the morning the manna with the dew was all around the grass. Picture of the word of God. And the morning will always be a reference to the second coming of Christ. A couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question about the third day. And I ran you back over there to uh, Matthew chapter, uh, Mark chapter 13 and showed you in verse 34 the four watches, the even, the midnight, the cock crowing, and the morning. And I showed you how that they span the course of 2,000 years of church history, but Christ comes in the morning. The morning. So Christ in the Bible is called in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19, he's called the day star. That's our sun. The church age is likened to a nighttime. And it's likened to a nighttime through four watches and in the morning, guess what? The sun comes up. That's why God fixed the sun that every morning when you see it come up, it's red. It's blood red. That's why he fixed the sun that every night when you see it when it goes down at night, it's red. It's blood red. You know why? Because the last thing he wanted you to see at night and the first thing he wanted you to remember in the morning is the blood of Jesus Christ. God's son cleanses you from all sin. Amen. How about that one? See that thing? He's the son of righteous in Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. He's called the day star over there in, in, uh, uh, in Second Peter as I said. He's called the morning star in Revelation chapter 2 verse 28. And the nighttime comes, and uh, we go through the church age, and in the morning, when the sun comes up, he arises, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the dew. It's all around the, all in the grass. Dew is made up of water vapor. Dew is, is water that gets on the grass, it gets on your flowers, it gets on everything. And while you're sleeping at night, that dew forms because of the condensation in the air, and then you get up and there's, you walk through your backyard, your feet are soaking wet. Water, God waters everything, but your grass is greener. Everything is cleaner. It washes everything. And what this whole earth needs, it is so filthy, is it needs good washing by the second coming of Christ. Amen. And he's going to do it for you. He's going to do it for you. Now, he talks about the grass. Grass in the Bible, we're likened to people. He talks about Grass being cut down, like in Psalms 37, 2. In Psalms 90, verses 5 and 6. Psalms 103, verse 15. Psalms 102, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 says, all flesh is grass. Isaiah 51, verse 12 says, man is, is made as grass. And the indication in the Bible is, as we look over your yard, you see it. You look up the grass grows. You know what you got to do in the springtime, a couple of times a month. You got to mow the lawn. 
You get out that big old power mower and you're running up and down there and you cut the grass. Well, that's what Christ is going to do with the second coming of Christ. He's going to mow the lawn. He's going to cut the grass. And he's going to come down, if you ever studied Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel chapter 1, or other places in there, you'll find that when he comes back, he comes back on something called a wheel within a wheel that is likened to a lawnmower, a threshing instrument, blades that spin around. And he comes right down on this earth. And you know what he does with the wicked men that all flesh is grass? You know what he does with the wickedness of men is grass? He mows the lawn. And comes back at the second coming. You see, I know I'm weird. I, I, I know that. But I'm going to tell you, I believe Romans chapter 1, verses 19, 20, where it says that the visible things of God are, uh, are clearly seen and understood by the things that God made. I hate mowing the lawn. The only thing is I love mowing the lawn is I play that I'm God at the second coming of Christ. <laughs> I fire that sucker up, boy, and it's just homing together and that grass is high up there and I just look at it like all the armies of the Antichrist. I hate mowing the lawn. I'd rather do anything in the world mow the lawn. I'd rather go to the dentist and get my teeth pulled without any Novocaine and mow the lawn. <clears throat> the only thing that's my salvation in mowing the lawn is the second coming of Christ. Boy, I get up there, you know, and the grass is down there, and I could just, I just, I just, I just think about it, what it's going to be like. <clears throat> and boy, you go up and down that thing, man, and, I, and the thing I like about it, you, some of you people put the, the bag on that carries the grass out, not me. <laughs> I want to see that people fly out of that machine, man. <laughs> man, I, I fire that baby up, and I'm going down through there, and grass is going everywhere, you know. <clears throat> and I'll tell you, that's what it's going to be like at the second coming of Christ. I, I know that's weird, but you see, you ought to get to the place in your life where you see God's picture of His Word in everything that you do. Amen. Why, there isn't a time that I go through a rainstorm, knowing what I know about the Bible, that I don't understand that that's a picture of what God is going to do. If what happens first becomes a cloudy day. That's Joel chapter 2. Second coming of Christ is going to be a cloudy day. Then you start to see off in the distance lightning. The Bible says that lightning is Satan falleth from heaven like lightning. He's coming down. And then you hear the thunder. Psalm 77 says the thunder. Psalm 29 is the very voice of God. It thundereth. One time, over there in John, somebody says, I wonder how God's going to, God's going to call uh, us up at the rapture of the church. One time over there in John, there's a bunch of people who standing around that are believers. And they hear God's voice come down and say something to them. And there's a bunch of unbelievers all around there that don't believe in God. And the Bible says the ones that believed in God heard a voice. And all the other people that didn't believe in God, they just heard thunder. Now, maybe that don't do much for me, but I get my ears perked up when I start to thunder. I'm listening. Now the world just says, oh, it's going to rain, it's thundering. Boy, I see that old lightning falling. And I really believe, because the Bible says that before, back there in Isaiah, that before God does anything, He's going to tell you what He's doing. And He already told me that a rainstorm is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Now if I was God, and I'm not, but if I was God and I laid that thing out in the Bible, you know when I would come back? I'd come back in a rainstorm. 
Because the Bible says in such an hour you think not, the Son of Man cometh. You don't know the day and the hour. I can't propin that. But I'm going to tell you something. When I see those clouds gathering, and I see that lightning flashing, and I start to hear the roll of the thunder, I'm ready to go. Amen. And then you know what happens? The heavens open up, the rain comes down, it thunders and crashes and lightning. Picture of the tribulation period. And it's going back and forth. You know what causes a thunderstorm, don't you? Cold air versus hot air. You know what's going to cause the tribulation, don't you? Portions of evil versus the forces of good. And when the heavens open up and that rain comes down and it just beats everything after the storm is over in the morning, the sun's up, the sky's clear, the air's cleaner, the grass is cleaner, everything is cleaner. And there in the sky, twinkling off the dew, is a rainbow. You know there's only two times you find a rainbow in the Bible? First time with Noah, second time at the second coming of Christ. And Noah is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Oh, boy. Why do you think that they told you there was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? There is. There's also streets of gold at the end of that rainbow. So what you have here is getting this all together. Verse 11 says that God overlooks Israel's transgression because of his covenant that he made with uh, Israel uh, way back when. And then he jumps into verse 12 showing that he's going to put an end to all nations and he's going to destroy all the nations at the second coming as a roaring lion. But at the second coming in the morning, the word of God likened to rain, water, and dew is going to come down and make everything cleaner on this earth. And then God is going to establish his covenant with Israel that he promised to Abraham. So that's what you got. Just one, two, three. Just that simple. Now it goes on in verse 13 about the same context. We just change gears a little bit here. But there's a lot to learn here. It says a foolish son is, a, is the calamity of his father. And the contentions, contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. Now, inspirationally, it speaks for itself. A foolish son will be a, a, a calamity to his father and his mother. And a contentious wife who gives problems all the time, it'll, be, it'll always be an issue. But again, the verse here, looking at it from a doctrinal standpoint, we're dealing again with the nation of Israel. Let me show you how. And this is one of the great key verses in the Bible because it shows you two main ways to study the nation of Israel. Now, I know there's a lot of ways to study Israel, but there's two main ways. And if you want to get a complete understanding of the nation of Israel, you've got to study it these two ways. And it's a lot like the church. If you want to understand your relationship to Christ, you've got to study it two ways. First of all, you're a son of God, so you study it that way. You get all the material about that as you as God's son. But then the Bible says that if you're a male or female here, and you're saved, you're Christ's bride. So now you're a female. So you've got to look at all of that aspect. When you put the two together, son versus bride, you've got a complete picture of the church. Now Israel's the same way, almost the same way. Because there's two ways to study the nation of Israel. The first one is God's son. We're going to look at that for a moment. And then the second will be as God's wife. 
Not a bride, but a wife, a married wife. You see, we're not married to Christ yet. But Israel was married to God in the Old Testament. Let me show you how it works. Now, let's look at the first way first, a son. And this will be the first way you want to get all the material together to study uh, the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. This is the first time you find it. In Exodus chapter 4, they're getting ready to come out in chapter 12. And God is forming up the nation of Israel. And he says in verse 22, uh, Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, uh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. See that thing? My firstborn. Now, it can get confusing if you don't understand your Bible. Or have somebody to explain it to you. Because you're a son of God too this morning. But not like Israel. See, you're a son of God as an individual. There was never a Jew in the Old Testament that was a son of God as an individual. They were a son of God as a corporate nation. When God looked at Israel, he saw the nation as his son. When he looks at the church, he sees you individuals who were born again as his son. That's a major difference. And of course, like I said many, many times that I said yesterday, most people don't understand that. Most people blink that you were saved in the Old Testament like you were saved in the New Testament. Nothing could be farther from the truth. That's not true. And the reason I know that's not true is because when they died, they didn't go to the same place. Hello? No, in the Old Testament, God looks at the nation of Israel as a nation, as a corporate nation, as his son. And when you find Israel as a son of God in a corporate sense, it's always dealing with the political aspect of it. The kingdom of heaven as God's nation. That'll be Israel as a corporate nation, always dealing with the political line of the kings through the kingdom of heaven. Always. And it'll represent as a nation, their God's son, and as a nation, as God's son, as a nation in the millennium, they're going to reign with God. And this is the great key to the gospel. You see, when you find something in the Bible, even if it's in the Old Testament, it'll stay consistent and it'll always be a great key for the rest of the Bible. Now, when you understand that Israel as a corporate nation, <coughs> say it again, not individuals, that's you. But in the Old Testament, as a nation is God's son, then you take that aspect of God's son, a male, a man, a son, and it'll give you the keys to everything dealing with Israel for the rest of the Bible. Now, you get over in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll find a lot of stories there about, about, uh, about uh, men, and, and women too, but men. And you'll find, the Bible says, there was a certain man. Your Bible go through there, and he said, there was, a man had two sons. The Bible talked about the fact that there's a rich man and a poor man. Wherever you find that man in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, once you understand that Israel is God's son as a corporate nation, that story about that man will always be a story about the nation of Israel. It's not simple. It's not complicated. I'll give you an example of it. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. Now, this is a great, this is a great passage here on demon possession. And, uh, you know, demon possession is a real deal. It was a real deal in the Bible's time. It's a real deal today. And uh, most people, you know, uh, they, especially the charismatic world, they get all uh, upset about it and all get dialed into it and think that everybody's got a problem. You're demon-possessed. And that's not true. That's not true. Uh, that's not true at all. I told you the other night, the devil doesn't have to demon-possess you to get what he wants you to do. He just shows you the world out there and you'll be gone in a heartbeat. You don't need to do that. But it can happen. I had a lady in the church one time that uh, every time we had something, I didn't trust her with it any farther than I could throw her. And she, her thing that she always brought, that she always brought, uh, was, 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 was deviled eggs to everything we had. <laughs> and I was sure that she had a demon-possessed chicken at home that laid deviled eggs, and I wasn't going to eat them. 
Uh, we had a lady in this one time, it was, was demon-possessed, and you remember us deacons, we went out there and we exercised the demon and we unpossessed her, and we charged her $50, she didn't pay it, so she got repossessed. <laughs> what an unclean spirit has gone out of a man. Let's get back to the text here. You're in no mood today to appreciate my humor. <laughs> And somebody says, what humor was that, Bob? Anyway, verse 43, Matthew chapter 12. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, see that? A man. A man. He walketh through the dry places, seeking rest and findeth none. There's a lot in here, but we're not going to get into all this. I want to make my point here. Then he saith, I will return unto my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. Now, those seven spirits that he's talking about here are found in uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Just so you want to put it in there. Now, watch what he's saying. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man, see that thing? It's worse than the first. Now, here's your key. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. The man here is a generation of people. Now it can be an individual if you want to make the practical application to it. But in the context of what you got here, that man is the nation of Israel. Look at it. Verse 44. Unto his house, the whole house of Israel. And he's saying here that the nation of Israel at one time picked up some evil spirit. Then the evil spirit left and Israel cleaned itself up. It got religious, but it's still empty. And so he comes back and brings seven more wicked spirits on himself. And the last state of Israel is worse than the first state. That's Israel today. That's Israel going into the tribulation period. The man here is a generation of people. He's not a man. It's using it once you realize that Israel as a nation, every time you get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you find it a story about a man, it's going to be Israel. This is the key to it all. It's the difference between understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the second thing that you're going to find here, let's take the thing that you're going to look at, is you're going to find Israel is a great study of being God's wife. So you want to study him, first of all, as the son, corporate nation, but then you want to study him as a wife. That'll be the religious side. Israel is God's wife. Israel has a foolish son. You'll see them both the way you study them. When you go to Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, it tells you that Israel is God's wife. Just like Christ has a bride for him, God has a wife for him. And in the Old Testament, God operates through the Old Testament through his wife, Israel. In the New Testament, God operates through his son's bride, the church. They're not the same. They're not the same. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, we have Adam. He's the model. He's a type of Christ. He's also a type of God the Father. God created Adam. He put him dominion over everything. And he says, Adam, I got something I want you to do, but you can't do it by yourself. So I'm going to give you a help meet. Not a help mate. Your dog has a mate. Your cat will have a mate. Your canary will have a mate. Humans don't have mates, they have meats. M-E-E-T. If you're saved. 
If you're unsaved, I ain't sure what you got. But you, if you're saved, you got to help meet. What does that mean? It means that God, man, gave you a task and a commission. And for you to get it done, he gave you a woman that was going to help you meet that commitment that God called you to do. So in the Old Testament, Israel, God can't do it by himself. He needs a help meet. So God gave him a wife. In the New Testament, Christ can't do it by himself. So he gave him a bride, a help meet. I love pious people. I was one time, I was talking to a group of people, and I said, I can't do this on Thursday night because, you know, uh, I have to, uh, I have my Bible study on Thursday night. And the woman looked at me and she says, well, Brother Bob, when you ever say Brother Bob, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> Brother Alexander, that's really you're in trouble. She says, I, I, I don't mean to quibble about that, but she says, you know, it's not really your Bible study. It's the Lord's Bible study. And I said, I'm glad to know that. We can go ahead and meet. Let him teach it. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. If I didn't show up Thursday night, you think God's going to come down and teach you lame heads anything? <laughs> you really think he's going to walk in that door and say, okay, open your Bibles now. See how pious a statement like that is? Well, brother, it's not really your Bible. Then who is it? <coughs> well, it's the Lord. Really? Then let him teach it. You know why he won't teach it? Because I'm his helpmeet. That's why. He depends on me like God wants to depend on you. No, I can't help it if you shirk your responsibilities. I'm not going to shirk mine. You know what Paul said about the gospel of Jesus Christ? He said, it's my gospel. It was his gospel. God gave it to him and then he gave it to everybody else. This ministry, it's my ministry. It's not yours. You want to be part of it? Love to have you. I'll carve out a big piece and keep you so busy you'll die in the process. But you know what? End of the day, at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not going to be you that gives an account for this work. It's going to be me. Yeah, obviously it's God's work. Sure it is. But you know what? In the New Testament, God said, I can't do it by myself. My son can't do it by himself. I'm going to give him a helpmeet. You know why you don't get that? If you're not a very good helpmeet. And this lady wasn't. She had the long dresses. She had the long hair and a bun. She had it all down. I mean, she walked into Cryptip, those buns on her head, they'd be grabbing those things thinking they were cinnamon rolls, but they weren't. She had it all down. She had the dress down. She had the talk down. She had everything down. She did not understand the concept that if you're saved this morning, you're his helpmeet. Amen. Somebody said, well, you know, we got a problem. Let's just put it in God's hands and God will take care of it. I believe that. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But you actually think God's just going to come down and fix your flat tire? You think God's going to come down and fix your problem? You know what God's going to do? He's going to find a helpmeet out here and bring that helpmeet along to help you through what you've got to go through. That's why he does it. And in the Old Testament, it was his wife. She was to be the helpmeet of God to take the light to the Gentiles. Now then in the New Testament, it's you and me for Christ as the bride of Christ to take the truth, the gospel to the world. I mean, how complicated is that? In all of history, certainly all the Bible, but I'll say all right now, all of history is built around those two identities. In Proverbs chapter 22 and 23, they're called the landmarks. And God shows you that in the Old Testament, everything he did was around his wife. In the New Testament, everything he does is around his church. Now, the fact that you don't get that, you've been hanging out with the wrong people. 
Now let's go back to the Old Testament. It's going to get better. It's going to get gooder. Because here's another great unknown today. You know God, as we speak with his wife Israel, you know God's divorced. Divorce. I grew up in churches that if you were a divorced person, you couldn't go to the normal church service. They had a little room back there for divorced people. Just like you had leprosy. Hey, I've been in churches all my life that have special classes for divorced people. Because they didn't want you divorced people mixing with other people and maybe hooking up and marrying them. Because, oh boy, then we got a problem. Boy, you got a problem in your church when divorced people start marrying other people and getting married again. Boy, you got a real problem. And that was the mindset for many men. It probably still is in most cases. And I used to laugh at it. Guy would say, I want to join the church and I love the Lord and I love the Bible. And you know, I tell you, I, uh, I just really want to do everything God wants me to do. And uh, I would like to teach a Sunday school class. Uh, have you ever been divorced? Yeah, I was divorced years ago. Can't do it. Okay, well, I'd like to drive a church bus down. You've been divorced? Yeah, you you can't do that. Well, I'd like to sing in the choir. You've been divorced? Can't do that. Well, I'd like to be a deacon. (laughs) Forget it. You can't be that. Well, pastor, what can I do? You can tithe. (laughs) That's how it works. Can't do anything, but we want your money. Nietzsche said one time, God is dead. Shock the world. He's not dead. I just talked to him this morning. But I'll tell you what will shock most of God's people. He's divorced. I'll show you. I, I always show you. I just kind of let it go for a while till you almost go into cardiac arrest and then I'll give it to you and bring you back. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. God said to Israel, I'm married unto you. Isaiah 54, verse 1. God says, God's marriage wife is Israel. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4. This shows you a great connection here. It says the land is married to the Lord. And of course, that land is, is Israel. Then what happened is this. Under the Old Testament law, there were grounds for divorce. And one of the grounds was adultery. If a man found an uncleanliness in a woman that was his wife, he could put her away. So in a spiritual sense, God looked at God's wife and she had stepped out and committed spiritual fornication. Read about it through the Old Testament with all the other gods. One of the first commandments, thou shalt have no other god before me. How many times did God tell you he was a jealous God? So his wife, Israel, stepped out on him with other gods, Baal worship. God pleaded with her. You ought to read it, the accounts in Ezekiel, down around chapter 22 or some of those places. How he pleaded with her and how she dotted upon her lovers. She committed great acts of whoredoms. So bad that when God told Hosea to write his book, he says, take a wife of whoredoms, which is a violation of the law. But at that point, who was paying any attention to the law? 
And so when Hosea went out there to preach and give them God's word, you know what Israel did? The same thing that God's self-righteous people do today. Well, who are you to tell me when you violated the law and you married a harlot? Gomer. What a looker she must have been. <laughs> Golly! I don't know what to tell you. And <laughs> when they started to point fingers, you know what he did? i tell you what he did. He put that finger in back and said, you know why I took a wife of harlots? Because God told me to as an object lesson that you as God's wife have committed whoredoms. Read the book of Hosea. It's all the way through it. So what did God do? Isaiah chapter 50 verse 1, it says, Thus saith the Lord God, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement from whom I have put away? God divorced her. He put her away. Under the Old Testament law, he separated himself from his wife, Israel. That'd be Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 and Deuteronomy 20, 24 verse 3. And from 606 B.C. up to now, up through the tribulation period, God has separated himself from his wife Israel. He has put her away. He's hidden from her. He watches her from afar. He takes care of her. But he's divorced himself from any relationship with her. All this stuff going on today with the nation of Israel, how they pray of God at the Wailing Wall and all that stuff. You know what? They may as well be praying up against the wall of a quick trip. <laughs> At least you can get a cup of coffee there. <clears throat> God divorced his wife under the Old Testament law, but God never violates his own principles. So as in any marriage with issues and problems, the key word and concept will always be Restoration and reconciliation. That's always the bottom line. It's always the bottom line. The bottom line in any marriage, when it gets into trouble, gets into problems, and maybe it doesn't work out. I don't know. We'll have water under the bridge sometime. But I'm telling you, from a Bible standpoint, following the principles of the Word of God, God's program when you have problems, when he has problems with his wife and he put her away, it was a temporary putting away and he's going to reconcile with her and restore her. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we all know is the definitive new passage passage on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Nothing in the Old Testament. It's all found there. In fact, he adds some things in that in that, that he doesn't have in the Old Testament. Why? Because you're dealing with the church and not with Israel. Now, listen to what I'm about to say here. Fundamentally, you need to understand this. In the Old Testament, under the law, listen to me now. In the Old Testament, under the law, there were grounds for a divorce. And God divorced Israel and put her away, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, gave her a bill of divorcement on those grounds, adultery against other nations and other gods. See the book of Hosea. But God is going to restore himself to her at the second coming of Christ. Now, here we go. Stay with me. In the Old Testament, there were grounds for divorce. In the New Testament, listen very carefully. You don't want to miss this. In the New Testament, there are no grounds for divorce. None whatsoever. Now, I say that in a world where Christians are getting divorced like donuts are flying out of a quick trip on Saturday morning. 
But I'm telling you from the Bible standpoint, I'm going to lay it out here and I'm going to explain it to you so you grasp it. In the New Testament, there are no grounds for divorce, no none whatsoever. Because the model in the New Testament will be Christ and the church. We're not under the law. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, that the relationship between a husband and a wife is like Christ and the church. And that's the model. And just, we call it eternal security. Just as Christ will never separate from the church. Just as Christ will never separate from the church. One more time for the slow people. Just as Christ will never separate himself from the church. Two Christians ought to never separate themselves from each other. It's the difference between the Old Testament and God giving Israel the bill of divorcement and eternal security in the New Testament where God will never leave you or separate from you. Now, I say all that. It is true. And the reason why I say that is because we're under grace. They weren't. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. They didn't. You are a son of God. They were not. And as a son of God, with the Holy Spirit of God inside you, there ought to be nothing, nothing, nothing that two Christians can't work out together in Christ Jesus. Woman said to me one time, well, I, I just don't love my husband. I said, you got to love him. She said, well, I can't stand him. I said, well, you know, you got to work at it. And she said, well, I just hate him. And I said, well, you ain't got a chance there either. The Bible says you got to love your enemies. You got nowhere to go. You know, some of you are unlovable. All unlovable people, stand up. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you people are hard to love sometimes. You really are. I can be unlovable. I can be hard to love sometimes. I can. I am. I, the older I get, the, the more crankier I get, and the worse I feel, and the best I, I just, I don't, you know, I just, don't mess with me today, I'll smack you. <laughs> but the most unlovable people I ever met in my life, they're unlovable. You know what? I still love them. You know why I still love them? Because I think how unlovable I was with God for so many years. They love me. You're, you're all human. You all have your good days and your bad days. Why should I let your, your inability to deal with something break a relationship or be loving you when I may be the one to be able to help you with it? I mean, it's just that simple. Now, I use that as an example, but i got to be honest with you. You're all lovable. I don't see any unlovable people. I just saw one in the back over there. But you're, you're, you're all lovable. You are. You're the most lovable people on the planet. You're good, you're kind, you're loving, you're sweet. You are. But I had to use that as an example. But I know what everybody's thinking right now. He's talking about me. He's talking about me. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the guy sitting next to you. No, I'm not talking about you. So a husband and a wife should never separate from the marriage. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that there is a biblical separation of, of getting apart when things get chaotic. But he tells you that the believer is never to leave. Now the Bible says if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. Now allow me to explain this New Testament concept so you can compare it to what we're talking about in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there'll never be biblical grounds for divorce. In the Old Testament, there was. But hey, come on. You're well aware of as I am that there's many, many divorces among God's people. 
And where there may not be any biblical ground for a divorce, there are reasons for a divorce in the New Testament. This is what I want to focus on. And the reason will always be that either one or the other, in many cases, both parties won't follow the patterns and do what the Bible says. If you've got a husband and a wife that are having problems and they follow what the Bible says and they commit themselves to what the Word of God says, they're going to be okay. But I'm going to tell you, sometimes you get a husband and he won't do what's right. Sometimes you get a wife and they won't do what's right. Sometimes you get a, both of them won't do what's right. I've seen them where the husband says, I want to work it out. The wife says, not me. I've seen it where the wife says, I want to work it out. The husband says, not me. And I've seen them where they look at each other and they say, neither one of us want to work it out. But at the end of the day, there's no grounds for a divorce in the New Testament. But there's reasons. Now, I say that with grace, understanding that some of you are sitting here tonight and you're a Christian and you've been divorced. And the last thing I want to put on you is the fact that you think you did something wrong. I I don't know that you did or you didn't. But I will tell you this. Sometimes, sometimes a husband will get to the point where he doesn't do what he needs to do. He doesn't follow through with it. Doesn't become the man. After 10, 15 years, the woman just busted and broke and done. Sometimes it's the other way. In other words, what I'm saying is there may not be any biblical ground, but there are sometimes extenuating circumstances that God certainly understands. At the end of the day, I don't care if you made a mistake in getting divorced or you didn't. It doesn't matter. The, the, the mistake of getting a divorce when you maybe you shouldn't or you didn't do what you did is no different than every other mistake we made in life. God's grace covers it all. I never, you know, in this church, I, I never look at anybody of where they've been for and what they went through, what they did or what they didn't do. I don't care where you're at now. But there are people in this church here this morning that you went to other churches and they threw you out because of the fact that you were divorced. And I welcome with open arms. I don't care. You, you think that in those same churches that, that didn't want anything to do with you, those pastors and those deacons and those people in that church are just as got as much dirty laundry as you got. They just got theirs locked in a closet someplace. It's easier to focus on yours than it is theirs. And my point is simply this. God in the Old Testament had a wife. That was Israel. And under the law, he had ground to divorce her on the basis of adultery. And she stepped out on him with other nations. So he divorced her, gave her a bill of divorce. But he's going to restore her. Because at the end of the day, Old Testament, New Testament, bottom line is restoration. In the New Testament, there are no grounds for the divorce. Because it's Christ in the church. And just as Christ won't separate himself from his bride, you, you can't separate husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let the wives revel under the Lord. It's the model. But it happens. And many times it happens because most of the people bless their hearts in the day and their religion. They didn't have a biblical marriage to start out with. So you really can't blame them. But where you're at now from here on is where you got to focus. That's all. No big deal. No big deal. When in the Old Testament, Israel as a husband and a wife had issues, they, uh, they were under the law. But they had a strict guideline to follow, and God, God followed those guidelines, and he dealt with them on that basis. In the New Testament, when marriage begin to fall apart and have issues, uh, there's an absolute guideline that they have to follow. Many times they will, many times they won't. Many times one will, the other one won't, and it's just the way it is. But as long as both parties want to follow what the Bible says and do what the Word of God says and understand the role of each other as Christ in the church, you know, some of God's people will have problems with other God's people. And it'll go on for years. I've known people that hated people for years. And you know what? After so many years, you forgot even what you hate them for. But you know why you never fix those things? It's easy. It's not complicated. It doesn't take a degree in theology. You know why you won't fix that thing? Because you won't do what the Bible says. That's all. 
You know, I don't know of a problem that you have or I have this morning that can't be simply fixed by doing what the Word of God says. Now, how complicated is that? Not very. In both cases, the Old Testament on the law and the New Testament on the grace, it will go back and reflect on God in the Old Testament as Israel as wife, as Christ in the New Testament, the church as his bride. And all, the, and all this based on Israel as God's wife in the Old Testament and the church as Christ in the New Testament. But either way, it goes on to say the rest part of that verse and the contentious, uh, contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. Now what does that mean? How does that fit into this? Continual dropping. Israel continually, as the wife of God, drops her responsibility as the help me to God. We say in the world, boy, I dropped the ball on that. What do you say? He's saying that Israel, as God's wife, dropped the ball continually as being the helpmeet to what God wanted to do. You know what? You can put it into the church age. Without a doubt, the church today has dropped the ball uh, on being the helpmeet for Christ. Without a doubt. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. You don't think what I'm saying, what I'm saying is true. Pastors have dropped the ball with their churches. Churches have dropped the ball with their people. Missions have dropped the ball with the world concept. Christians have dropped the ball with doing what God wants them to do. And the Bible says, it's, it's, and today we as Christ's bride, we, we're like Israel. We have dropped the ball. In the Christianity, as in Israel, it's a continual dropping. We just simply don't do what God called us to do. Look at verse 14. Houses and riches are an inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. <laughs> he's not even married. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, the practical is obvious. Fathers typically leave their kids an inheritance, and you find a good wife, you've got a good thing going for you. But look at the word prudent. The word prudent means to be careful. It means in a practical sense to be wise. It means to be careful of the consequences of things. It means to move cautiously around things. In a Bible context of what we have here, in the context of what we're looking at, always be careful to follow the principles of the Word of God in any scenario, either as the wife of God in the Old Testament or the bride of Christ in the New Testament. And I know we're talking about the wife of God in the Old Testament, but I'm showing you the contrast by throwing in the, the bride of Christ. Now, as it applies to Israel, it says the fathers, houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers. So we see Israel in the beginning has what we call patriarchs or fathers. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. And it was through them that God gave the nation of Israel their inheritance, the land. Their relationship with God, the kingdom of heaven, went and transferred to every one of these guys. And it translates into the dew coming down in the millennium after God passes over their transgressions. This will be the visible land grant that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. Israel, as God's wife, needs to be proved and careful. Stay with what gave them to get them where they're at. That's what he's saying. And in the New Testament, you and I, the bride of Christ, we need to do the same. Because we got the judgment seat of Christ coming up against us. So we need to be careful. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15, talking about the bride of Christ, that we're to walk circumspect, not as fools. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.5 that if you want to be crowned and you're running a race for Jesus Christ, you have to run lawfully. You have to do it by the book. Now look at verse 15. 
slothfulness cast us into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. Now again, inspiration, it speaks for itself. You don't work, you don't eat. We all get that. You'll be on a street corner with a sign, help me, I'm homeless. Can't get that, take in your money right now, my cell phone's ringing. I've got to text somebody in Australia. Now the key words here to look at, at this downfall will be slothful and idleness. And this is what you do with a verse like this. You look for the key words. Slothfulness is simply wasting the things that God has given us. Some of you don't know your Bible very well. You know why you don't know it very well? Because you've wasted all the time you could have got in the Bible doing something else. That's slothfulness. Some of you don't have anything. You can't rub two nickels together. You know why? Because you've been slothful with the money that God gave you. Most people think if you had more money, it would solve all your problems. No, it wouldn't. The problem with you is not getting more money. The problem is you don't do what's right with the money you have. The ability and talents. We're slothful with the abilities that God gives us, the talents that God gives us, that we can do for Him. He gave it to us to do to Him. We have problems in our families, our kids. You know why? Because we've been slothful and not doing what's right and training them up the way they should go. All these things that we have to be effective for God in our life, and we get slothful with them. And then we wonder why we don't we got the problems we've got. We wonder why our families have the problems we got. We wonder why we have the issues in our life. We wonder why we're not happy. We wonder why we don't have this. We've been slothful with the very things that God gives us. God's given you a Bible, the most precious gift outside of salvation that He could ever give. And some of God's people don't even bother reading it. Then the second thing is the idle soul. And we know that from our past studies that body and soul are used interchangeably. These will be people who get saved and never do anything for God. God saved us in Ephesians chapter 4 and goes through those things for the work of the ministry. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever recognize anybody when they, got, when, they, uh, when they got saved that they didn't do four things. First thing they did when they got saved, that's number one. They got baptized, that's number two. Third thing is they joined a New Testament church. And the third thing is they went to work for God. It's just that simple. You got people who get saved, but they won't get baptized. They get saved, or they'll never join a church. Or they get saved, and won't get baptized and join a church. Or they get saved, get baptized and join a church, but they never go to work for God. You can mix and match it any way you want. It's like peanuts, cashews, pistachios. Look at verse 16. He that keepeth the commandments keepeth his own soul, but he that despises his ways shall die. Now let me draw your attention to the phrase, his ways. And you need to get this. You and me as a child of God will not make it going our way. You may think you will, but you will not. And by the time you figure out you won't, it's too late to get out of it. It's like guy getting who don't like roller coasters out of worlds of fun and gets on that 9,000 foot high roller coaster up there. And everything is fine when you roll out of the gate. Everybody's laughing and talking, and you start that long climb. You get to the top, and the moment you crest that top, you know what? You know you made a wrong choice. And you know what's even worse? Ain't no way you're getting out of it. You're going to ride it to the end. You know, life's like that. The thing to do is before you look at the roller coaster, look at the sign. No, no pacemakers, no kids under this age, this size, no pregnant women. No fear of heart, fear of heights. Follow it, man. 
You say, ah, oh, not me. Click, 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 click. You got that thing, boy, and you look down there, here it comes. You mean, here it comes down? No, here comes your stomach, up to your mouth. <laughs> and there's times in your life when you know to do the right thing and you don't do it, and you keep on doing it, and you keep on doing it, and you get to the point just like that roller coaster. You can't get back. God gave us some rules to live by and to follow. And when we get our, our attitude about God's ways, uh, notice it's plural. And we get an attitude against those things and want to go our ways, it's, it's never going to work for you. God people just never seem to get this truth. Job chapter 9 verse 4 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I don't quote it much, but I look at people in the situations they're in and I always think it. I'd like to say it to them, but by that point they don't want to hear it. But as Job 9, 4, who hath hardened himself against him and prospered? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. But he that keepeth the commandments keepeth his own soul. Do what the Word of God says. The Word of God will preserve you. I showed you, read you Isaiah 49, uh, 6 when we started. And it told you there that Israel is preserved by God. The Word of God will preserve you in your life, in your family. Some of you this morning, I look across this room and I watch where you've come from. I know your history. I know where you came from in life before you got saved. I know the problems you had. I know the problems you had in your family. I know the problems that you had growing up and the things that were against you. And I look at you sitting here today, loving the Word of God, loving God, saved on your way to heaven and a vital part of my ministry. And I think to myself, you know what you are? You're living proof that the Word of God will preserve you. Because you shouldn't be here. Amen. It'll keep you. You know, the Bible's likened to salt. And in the Old Testament, they had what they called in Numbers 18, 19, a covenant of salt. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 13, uh, I think it's 2, 13, uh, when they had the meat offerings and the peace offerings, they, they put salt in it. You know why? Because salt's a preservative. And salt was a picture of the preserving aspect of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, it talks about you and me. It says, you are the salt of the earth. You and I, as God's people with the word of God, would keep any country, any nation preserved where they wouldn't deteriorate and corrupt and fall apart. But then the Bible says that the salt has lost its savor. And that's what's happened in America. Salt has lost its savor. America is in a corruption, not because of the Democrats, not because of the liberals, not because of anything other than God's people. The salt has lost its savor. We ain't preserving nothing. You can't even preserve yourself. You can't get through one day without having upside down and inside out problems. You can't get through life without losing your family. You can't go through a marriage without getting a divorce. We can't preserve anything. All because of the fact that the salt has lost its savor. And yet, you will sit here this morning, most of you, if not all of you, and your life is now preserved. Sure, you made mistakes in life. Sure, you had some bad turns in life. No problem. We all have. We've all done stupid things. We've all had things that happened to us. It was not our fault. Every one of us. We've had most of the things that happened to us, but it was because of our fault. But you know what? When you turn, your, turn the corner and you see that book and you fall in love with God and get that book, you know what that book does for you? It preserves you. Yes. And you're here this morning through the preservation of the Word of God. You're not here because you decided to come to church. You're not here because you came to hear me preach. You're not here because I'm such a great preacher and Bible teacher, though I am. You're here because of the fact that God preserved you. Right. And He'll preserve you. But it will always come down to which way you go in life. 
couple of weeks ago in Proverbs, we talked about that. His way versus God's way. And then verse 17. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord. And that which he hath given will pay again. Now the principle is universal in either testament, old or new. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago that how we take care of the poor is a great balance in our lives. Uh, Paul tells us to help each other in times of need. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, the famous verse, it's better to give than receive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and again in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, the, the Christians down in Jerusalem have a terrible time. A great, great, a great time of, of, of Darth. Uh, they were hungry, they had no food, they had no money. And so Paul goes around and he collects up from the saints a money to take down for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And the examples are the many in the Bible. In this church, you know, I get people all the time that call me from, from I don't even know who they are, wanting help. And I don't mind helping people, but I want to tell you something. The first people that we help in this church are you. You get in a jam, we're here for you. That's what our spot was supposed to be. And that's just the way it was. And many times I told them, but you know what? My advice to you is, why don't you call your church where you go to? Well, I don't go to church. Well, then, I even said this a couple of times. Well, you know what? If serving the devil is such a prosperous thing, why don't you take care of you? Why do you live like hell, live like the devil, do what you want, and then you get in a bind, you come to church and want God to bail you out? Right. Now maybe that's anger, maybe that's mean. I don't think it's anger, but maybe that's being cold, maybe that's being indifferent. But I'll tell you what else it is. It's the truth. Amen. If the devil takes such good care of you, and you just love hanging out with him, and pounding around with his crowd, and going where he wants you to go, when you get down in the dumps and you get in the jam, and you have every intention of going right back into that lifestyle, why come to God? And the Bible is filled with the examples. Last week we saw it with David and Mephibosheth. We saw Peter helping the lame man. Jesus helping blind Bartimaeus. But doctrinally as it stands, the verse here, He that hath pity upon the poor, lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he giveth we pay, it doctrinally dealing with the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. It's the Gentile nations helping out Israel, who is poor, going through the tribulation, who has nothing. And the lending to the Lord is a great concept in a practical application. When you give to others, it will always come back to you through the blessings of God. Because the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Taking care of what belongs to God. See? And I don't know if you know this in the Bible, but in the Bible there's only two things that we can lend to the Lord. I don't even know if you know this. There's only two things that we can lend to the Lord. One of them is our children. Because Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 28, when God gave her the boy, she says, I'm going to lend him to the Lord. And she did. And the other one is at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. That's, that's our substance that God has given us on this earth. You know why? Those are the only two things. I'll tell you why. Because reason being, they're not really ours to begin with. The Bible says that your children are for God's heritage. They're not for yours. How dare you take God's heritage and make him a track star when that's not what God wanted him to be? How you dare you make him a great baseball player when that's how God wanted him to be? How dare you take God's heritage and decide what you're going to do with it instead of getting into the Word of God and let God decide what He's going to do with it? Right. How dare you create out his future of what he's going to be and what he's going to do and put God completely out of it because you want him to be what you want to be because you want to vicariously experience it and you want him to get a good education, you want him to get this and you want him to be famous, you want him to be this and you want him to be that. I just soon have him be God's man and do what God wanted him to do if that be out in the street corner putting tax out every weekend. That's good. But that's just me.
Psalms 127 says, verse 3, that our children are the heritage of the Lord. We get the idea that they're our heritage. No, no, God gave them to you. You're to be a steward of them. God gave them to you to train up that the heritage of the Lord would guarantee to go on and do what God wants them to do. He didn't give them to you so you could make them what you want them to be. He gave them to you so you would be in the Word of God and make them what God wanted them to be. And then the second thing is our earthly possessions. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now you know me. I'm not against you having nice things. I think you should. Some of you drive nice cars. I think you should. Some of you have nice clothes. I think you should. I have nice clothes. I just can't find them. They're in a pile in my closet. But they're in there. We come to the point where, you know, there's nothing wrong with having nice things. There isn't. But don't get to the point that you let those nice things take from you what God wants you to be and what God wants you to do. He gave you those things for His honor and glory, not yours. He gave you those things so you could function. He gave you the job that you have, not so you would have an income to pay your bills. He gave you the job that He's got so you would be a paid missionary, that you could do what He wants you to do, like Paul, and you could be a tent-maker missionary and support your ministry by the job you have. We lose sight of that and think, oh, it's about everything I want, and we forget all about what God wants us to do. And someday we're going to give a stewardship of that. You know, there's seven stewardships in the Bible, and I would dare to say that the average Christian couldn't name one of them. You guys could. But it all comes from God. And the Bible says in Psalms 111, verse 5, A good man showeth favor, and lendeth, he will guide his affairs with discretion. He understands these things. Now, these truths are found in the book of Proverbs, and they'll be life-changing principles that we all need in our lives. And the book of Proverbs is about the way of God, the ways of God. You know, the Bible says in 1 Kings, and I've always loved things like this. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. You know, you don't have 3,000 Proverbs. You don't have a tenth of them. You do not have 3,000 Proverbs in your Bible. But you know what you do have? You have exactly out of the 3,000 what the Holy God picked to put in there that he wanted you to have. Now, that makes it special. I mean, if you would have had all 3,000, you'd have said, oh, well, here they are. But no, 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 no. He picked, handpicked out of that 3,000 exactly what he wanted you to have. Because it's important. That's what makes Proverbs so vitally important. He handpicked the Proverbs that would show you God's ways versus our ways. And then gives you the example of a wise man that followed God's way and the blessings of it, and a foolish man that went his way and was destroyed. And all through the Bible it's illustrated. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49, it tells a story. And it starts out in verse 46. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? You know, that's one of the greatest questions in all of the Bible. Many times I look at God's people, many times I look at myself. But many times I look at God's people and I simply say, why call him Lord, Lord, and you don't do what he tells you to do? What is the point of him being the Lord of your life if he's not the Lord of your life? What, did, what good is it if he's say he's the Lord of my life when he's only the Lord of your life and the things you want him to be the Lord of life and the things you want to keep to yourself, you're going to keep? Great question. And then he says in verse 47, Whoso cometh to me and heareth my sayings, and do with them, I will show you whom he is like. Oh boy, we're going to get to see what a guy that does what the Word of God said is like. He is like a man which built a house. Now here again, the man here is Israel. The house is the house of Israel. See? That's the, that's the primary application. Here it is again. But you know there's a practical application to it because you've got a house. And you're a man or a woman. 
which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the steam beat vehemently upon the house that it could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now it just simply says that when you go God's way, here's what you're like. You have a house. Doctrinally, it's Israel. Inspirationally, it's your body. The temple of God. We know that if this house be dissolved, we have a body not made with hands eternal in the heavens. So you have a house. And you, you build a foundation and you dig down deep. That's the depth of the Word of God. Oh, I know, most of God's people just want to be a surface kind of guy. I get that. You just want to know the four spiritual laws and, you know, things like that. You don't want to get down in the depth of the Bible. But when you lay a foundation in your life against the storms that's coming, you better dig down deep. You know what? If you ever get into combat, and I pray that you don't, but if you ever get in a combat and you get in a in a wood someplace or an open field where you're and you're you're dug in there and the artillery starts to come in and the 188 mortars start to come in on you and they start to artillery put the artillery on you with 88s and all that stuff over there. I don't care how deep you've dug your foxhole, suddenly it will not be deep enough. Nobody in combat, when the 88s come in and the mortars come in and all the artillery comes in, is laying in a two two inch deep hole. You want that sucker as deep as you can get it. You'll try to get down there and the guy that you see in the bottom will be speaking Chinese to you. And let me tell you something. You know what's wrong with God's people today? The winds of this world, the disasters of this world, the problems of this world are hitting you like a rainstorm and a windstorm. And the problem is you only got a two inch foundation dug. And you're getting blown everywhere around. Dig down deep. You know what? I teach Bible study on Thursday night the way I do. So you'll dig down deep. You know what I have for you singles? What I have for you? So you'll dig down deep. You know what we do in the people ministry like we did yesterday? I want you to dig down deep. You know what I do it on Sunday morning? I could come down here and just give you a fluff thing. The internet's full of messages that would be just nice to preach. We'd be done in 20 minutes and out of here. But you'll never dig anything deep that way. We're going to get down in the Bible. We're going to get your face in the Bible. We're going to get down in that thing deep. You know why? Because there's a storm coming in your life and you haven't already got into it. And your house, you better dig it deep. And you better lay your foundation on a rock. Now when the natural disasters of this life hit your house, you stand because the Word of God will preserve you. And you'll stand there at the end of the day Maybe some battered bruises and some blood running down off your knees and off your mouth and that thing, but you'll still be standing. And at the end of the day, for a child of God, it isn't how bad you get beat up as you get there. The question I have for you, and God will have for you at the end of that thing, are you still standing? (coughs) Verse 49. Last part of that verse. But he that heareth and doeth not. You see... You have to do something with what God gives you. You have to do something with what God gives you. You have no foundation because you build it on earth, not a rock, the world. And it falls and the ruin is great. You know what the tragedy is? It really is. And it's not apparent just as you see it because we get so caught up in all of the 
circumstances within it. You know what the great tragedy in Christianity is? It's always a tragedy when anybody goes down. It really is. It certainly is. And it's always a tragedy when people, you know, lose what they have with God. It really is. And, you know, we have a tendency to look at the reason, the why, and the circumstances. And we, we, we have a reason to look at it and try to justify it. Well, it was because of this or because of that or the problems here or the problems there. But, you know, the real tragedy? The real tragedy is when the house goes down because the natural disasters of this world and you're not prepared. It's a great ruin. It's a great ruin to the cause of Christ. We think it's about the poor person going through. What about poor God who counted on us to be a helpmeet and now we're gone? We're no longer there, if we ever were there. That's the great. That's the great. That's the great loss. That's the great ruin. It's not just the fact that that person is down and gone now. The great ruin is God loses out. Have you ever count on somebody to do something for you and they let you down? We all have. There's times that I thought this person's going to get this done. I showed up expecting it to be done, and that person either didn't hear what I said, didn't care what I said, or was on another planet when I talked to them. How do you think God feels sometimes who invested everything in us? Is there anything else that God could do? I mean, there's always something more I could do. I could call you on the phone and remind you. I could write it down. I could put it in a notebook for you. I could make you put it on your phone. There's always something more I can do. But there's nothing more that God could do. I mean, come on. He gave you his book. He gave you his Holy Spirit. He gave down and died for you. He did everything possible for you to be, as the bride of Christ, the help meet for him. And so when the, when the foundation is not dug and it's not built upon a rock and the natural disaster of this life comes and the house falls, it's a great ruin for the cause of Christ. Well, we'll hold up there. And uh, I'll give